Beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 56 tonight. And if you didn't get a handout or if you didn't get a prayer sheet, they are on the table at the back of the sanctuary. And if you need to go grab one, go ahead and grab one quickly. Turn to Isaiah 56, though. And, and we're going to look at tonight, we're going to focus our attention on these first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 56. Because there's a lot. Um, there's a lot in this text and there's a lot yet to come in Isaiah. Let's look at these words together. And um, let's read these first eight verses. Let's stand together as we read these words together. This is the word of the living God. Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to My holy mountain and make them joyful in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on My altar. For My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a great honor, Lord, to gather in your presence tonight, to come and to worship you, to offer to you, um, Lord, just the, the sacrifice of praise from hearts that have been redeemed and rescued and ransomed from hell and from death and been made the children of the living God and a part of the temple of God, which is your church. And Father, we praise you and thank you for this time, Lord, because we get to come and we get to, to hear from you. You have preserved for us your holy word. And so when we open your book, we hear the voice of the living God speaking to our souls. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would grant us ears to hear tonight. I pray, Father God, that you would grant to us um, an unbroken attention, that we would hang upon every word of the Lord, and that we would realize that it is in your word that we find life. It's in your written word. It is in the, the Word become flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in Your Word applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit that we come to know what is truly life. Thank You for that. I thank You, Lord God, that You have opened our once-blinded eyes and unstopped our once-deafened ears. I thank You, Lord God, that You have reached down and pulled us out of the miry clay of our wretchedness and of our sin and you have set our feet upon a rock and you have made us righteous in christ and lord god you are committed to 
to making us reflect the image of Christ more practically in our lives every single day. And we know, Lord God, that in order to truly commune with you, Lord God, to truly fellowship with you, we must do so in the word and by the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit. Help us do that tonight. I pray, Lord God, that I would be an instrument in your hands for the praise of your glory. I pray that you'd help me to teach these words accurately and faithfully, but Lord God, to to teach them with power, with unction. That, Father, these words wouldn't just be academic instruction. They wouldn't just be, you know, theological, um, you know, principles. But, But that, Father, your word would be sharp as a two-edged sword. It would be like a fire and like a hammer. Lord God, it would be a, a word that would, that would edify us and establish us more firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray you come and you meet with us and you use this, you know, wretched servant that I am for your glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, with, uh, with, with our jump into chapter 56 tonight in Isaiah, we're really what we're doing is, is we are, we're launching into the final section of Isaiah's prophecy. Okay, We're getting into the sort of the home stretch of Isaiah's prophecy and what it deals with. What we're going to look at here over the next several chapters is this question of how we are to live in the interim. How we are to live in the time between the now and the not yet, okay? These next several chapters are going to deal with how is it that we as the people of God, the, the, the remnant in the Old Testament, the, the remnant in the New, how is it that we are to live in between the promise and the fulfillment, right? How do we do that? And then the book is going to climax in chapters uh, 65 and 66 with a vision of the new heavens and, and the new earth. So let me explain kind of what I meant what I mean by that. Remember that the Lord has been promising a new beginning for His people, right? Ever since, really, Isaiah 40, you know, that's when the, when the tide had started to turn and, and we began to read the good things, the promises of God, and not just the condemnation of, of Israel and of Judah for their idolatry and for their wretchedness and for their rejection of, you know, God's lordship. And so God had been making these promises, right? These promises of a new beginning for His people. A promise later on as we get into you know, the, the latter parts of Isaiah. A promise of the return from captivity so that they might rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But even more, the Lord had made the promise of, of a servant that would come and do for His people what they could not do for themselves, Right? The promise of this servant, of the Messiah, right? Describing the way in which he would come and redeem God's people from the penalty of their sins. How the Messiah would bear the iniquity of his people and bring peace and salvation. How he would ultimately triumph. How he would receive the spoils of victory and the way in which he would share them with those who had been redeemed by grace, right? Our only hope 
for salvation is not you know the efforts that we can make and the striving that we can do and the religiosity that we can put on our only hope for salvation is someone to come and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves someone to come and to live a life of perfection before almighty god and fulfill all of the statutes of the covenant on our behalf do it perfectly do it sinlessly and then to give himself up give up his life as a ransom shed his blood so that our sins and our iniquity might be covered, right? And that He would rise from the dead and give evidence that He is the Son of God. He would ascend into heaven and sit enthroned at the right hand of God until He comes again, right? That's our only hope. That's our only hope. And so, it's the reason we preach the gospel, right? But then, we saw how the Lord went on to describe what this work of the servant, God's Messiah, would mean in the big picture for the people of God. It would mean great joy for His own, right? It would mean rescue and renewal that was rooted in the character of God. That we would, we would come to understand the character of God more fully, right? That, that He is the Maker and the Lord of hosts and the Holy One of Israel and the Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He promises through this servant the end of wrath. And he announces the covenant of peace that's been sealed by the blood of the servant, sealed by the blood of Jesus. Stability and eternal security in the Lord, right? And then last week, we saw this great universal invitation and, and really urgent command to come to the Lord and receive the blessing of without money and without price, to come and to listen to the Lord, to turn your ear to Him, to incline your heart to Him, to seek Him where He may be found, to call upon Him while He is near, and to return to the Lord by forsaking your sin. And then you would find, we would find abundant pardon, right? The enjoyment of everlasting blessing in God's eternal kingdom. But all of this, right? Everything... Everything that we read regarding these great promises, they are all predicated on the coming and on the redeeming work of the servant whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? All these blessings based on the Word of God's promise. The Word of God's promise. The Word that does not return to God empty but accomplishes all that He purposes. The Word that, that succeeds in the very thing for which God sends it, right? So these great three chapters, you figured out, I was talking about Isaiah 53, 54, and 55, right? Those great three chapters are collectively some of the greatest truths in Scripture, this abundance of grace to needy sinners. But here's the deal. Here's, here's the reality, and especially for these exiles that are in Babylon, right? Though God had made these incredible promises, right? Promises that we know have been fulfilled, have been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. Let me put it that way, right? Though they'd had these great promises from the Lord, they really had no idea when they'd be fulfilled, right? They had no idea when the servant Messiah would come and rescue his people and when he would establish his eternal 
kingdom. They knew they would be repatriated. They knew that they would go back and they would rebuild Jerusalem and, and they would rebuild the temple and they would resume you know, worship that they had not been able to engage in in the Babylonian captivity. But when this promise would be fulfilled was a mystery to them. And how then were they to live in the interim between the promise of the servant and its fulfillment? And that's a serious question, right? It needs a serious answer. And that's part of what we have here in Isaiah 56. In fact, the truth is, is that each of the exiles who were alive at the time, you know, who were truly saved through faith, they were actually going to die before they saw the fulfillment of the servant's promise, right? They would die looking to the future city. And their situation's not unlike our own. Yes, the Messiah has now come, right? We, we know that. The Lord Jesus Christ has borne our sins in His body on the tree. He's risen from the dead. He's established the new covenant by His blood and forged peace with us, you know, between us and the holy God, right? He's established the, the first fruits of His kingdom in our hearts and in His church, but his kingdom's not yet fully consummated as it will be, is it? And so here we are in this interim between the Lord's coming and his return. One promise fulfilled, one yet to come. And so how are we to live in this interim? That's the question really of vital importance because here's the truth, beloved, and I, and I know you know this. Waiting tests our faith, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Waiting tests our faith. It tests our faithfulness, doesn't it? This interim that we live in is a time that is, that is filled with trial and, and with testing. And it's a time when some persevere and when others fall away. And so show they never were of us. So how do we live so that we might endure to the end. That's one of the issues in this text. But this text also addresses another question. And it's this, who can be received into the people of God? It was an important question for the Babylonian exiles. You know, when they went back into Jerusalem and they reestablished the temple, there were foreigners that had taken up residence in that land. There were some people had, that had been ceremonially unclean, unfit to participate in worship. What do you do with those folks? Were they allowed to, to join themselves to the people of God? Were they allowed to, you know, be received into the people of God? And then last, the question that Isaiah 56 verses 1 through 8 answers is, why is God doing all of this? What exactly is the end goal? What's, what's, the, what's the, you know, prospectus here? What are we looking for, Right? So I want us to look at these three things tonight. This is not a normal outline for you. Normally it's an outline that goes verse by verse, right? This is not. This is an outline that goes theme by theme. It incorporates all the verses, but it goes theme by theme, okay? And I want us to look and consider each one of these questions sort of, you know, individually. And I want us to look first at this question, how is it that we're to live in the interim between the promise and the fulfillment? Or, to put it another way, what are the marks of the redeemed community? 
What do we look like? What are we to look like as we await the fulfillment of the promise? And as you read through these first eight verses, we see several characteristics that are described here that are regarding those who are redeemed and, and who have responded to faith in God's message of grace. And I just want you to look at them with me. Just let your eyes you know, trail along as I mentioned. Look at verse 1, first of all. Verse 1, they're commanded to keep justice and do righteousness. Then verse 2, they keep the Sabbath and they don't profane it. They keep their hands from doing evil. Verse 4, they keep the Sabbath. They choose the things that please God. They hold fast to His covenant. Verse 6, they join themselves to the Lord. They minister to Him. They love the name of the Lord and to serve Him. They keep the Sabbath and do not profane it. Those are all characteristic descriptions of people who have been redeemed by the grace of God. But before we look at these more closely, I want to make sure that we understand that these commands and these descriptions, and they're both in here, that they're not put forth by God as a way to earn righteousness and salvation with Him. In other words, this is not a souped-up, new improved version of the law by which now we can earn salvation with God. It's not a new set of rituals. It's not a new set of religious traditions. In fact, that entire notion is done away with at the very outset in in the words of verse 1. Read them with me again. He says, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Now, did you see that? Did you see the connection there? The issue is, do not do these things so that you can earn salvation and produce some kind of righteous merit with God by which you implore Him to act you know, on your behalf. That's not the idea here at all. These commands are given in light of God's promises. In light of God's promise that His salvation will come, right? Through, you know his servant, that his righteousness, the righteousness of God will be revealed in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's in light of these things, because of your faith in my word of promise, that you do these things, that my people will look like this, okay? So these marks and these characteristics are the consequence of faith, real and true faith in the Lord himself. In fact, as Paul said, in the prophet Habakkuk before him, the righteous shall live by what? Faith, right? So what are the marks of faith in the redeemed community that sets us apart from the rest of the world and marks us as the people of God? I want us to to get a sense of each of these phrases here. And so... We'll take most of them in order, but I want to save the command regarding the Sabbath for last, okay? In verse 1, the first thing we see is this, is that the faithful are those who are to keep justice and do righteousness. They're to keep justice and do righteousness. That seems like a pretty broad statement, doesn't it? Doesn't it? But here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying here. That word to keep is a word that means to guard or to observe or to give heed to something. It's to take it seriously. It's the idea of of guarding and observing the righteous principles of godly living that God has revealed to us in His Word, right? 
and then to apply those principles to every part of our lives. In other words, our manner of living is to be one that's pleasing to the Lord, that honors Him, that honors His righteous commands. Faith in the Lord is to be consistent, right? And it's to be expressed in the whole of our living. That is the essence of this command. In other words, here's what he's getting at. Our, our faith, beloved, it must be more than head knowledge, okay? I've said that to you before, but it bears repeating. It's got to be more than head knowledge. It's got to be more than just simply a knowledge of good and evil and what we ought to do that is good, but rather our faith must be displayed in the way that we live. I want you to think back to the beginning of Isaiah, okay? Well, it's been a long time. You probably can't remember back this far. So turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Back in Isaiah chapter 1, right? You remember that back in Isaiah chapter 1, God chastens Judah, right? He chastens them because of their idolatry. Their idolatry had made them hypocrites. Their idolatry had made their professions false. Their idolatry had made their claim of following God patently untrue, right? And so he says to them, And I just want us to look at verses 15 through 17. He says these words. He says, when you spread out your hands in worship, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So our actions. Here's what he's getting at. Your actions are not in keeping with your profession of faith. And so we need to understand, beloved, that when we hear these words, keep, you know, justice and do righteousness, the Lord is saying to us is that our actions are to be in keeping with our faith. Because the one who really believes God's word, verse 2, keeps his hand from doing any evil. It's just not on our radar. It's not how we desire to live. We don't want to be hypocrites and, 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 and fakers. We don't want to be nominal believers. We don't want to be Christians in name only. We don't want to have high-sounding words in a life that doesn't match. Right? You with me? In fact, to do that, to have that kind of a life, really makes a mockery of grace, does it not? It does. Grace is not, Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sins, so just keep on sending it up. That's not grace. Grace is, even though you do not deserve it, and you, do, you deserve the exact opposite, God sent His Son to be the propitiation for your sins. And oh, by the way, that same grace by which He sent Christ, He also sends the Holy Spirit by Christ in order to make you new and make you reflect the image of your God. Right? Then moving down to verse 4. God says that the faithful... This time, referring to the eunuchs, he says, choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. 
They choose the things that please me, and they hold fast my covenant. Now, here's what he's saying here. The, the, the idea here is that God's people choose. They, they carefully consider is the idea of that word. They, they purposefully decide for the things that God takes pleasure in. To put it in New Testament terms, okay? They do as Paul commanded in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, when he says to us, Finally, brothers, whatever is true... Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, here's the idea. We don't live, right? We're not to live haphazard unconsidered impulsive lives okay like so many in our world do instead we must think seriously about what pleases literally here what delights god and then choose that we need to be sober minded and and you know wisely consider what we do you've heard people say this before when they act out i just wasn't thinking That's not an excuse for Christians. We need to be carefully considering how we live. We seek to bring every thought, every question, every action, every issue, every relationship, every everything into submission to Scripture and under the ultimate purpose of bringing greater glory to God, right? That's our purpose. And so the orientation of our lives, the orientation of the redeemed is that They choose what pleases God. And we do that because we hold fast to the covenant that God has made with us in Christ. The idea of holding fast is the idea of of making something firm, of strengthening something, of of supporting something, right? Of, of, Of making something more established, right? So what's the idea here? Because we can't make the the covenant that God has, has wrought with us in Christ any more established than it already is, right? What's the idea here? The idea is it becomes more firmly established in our own hearts. In our own hearts. We are in covenant with God. And that's important to understand. When we become believers, we are in covenant with God. A covenant much greater, but not unlike the covenant between a husband and a wife. It's an exclusive covenant, right? Right? We are in a covenant with the Lord. A covenant that has been sealed by Christ's blood. A covenant that He's fulfilled with us, you know, for us and with us. The pledge that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the heart of the new covenant. It's the covenant of which Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I'll engrave it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. 
From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Ezekiel describes that very same covenant by saying in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 27. Man, these are rich words. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The point here is we are to take the covenant that we have with God in Christ seriously. That we both recognize, yes, the immense grace and the wonder that God would cut covenant with us. But also embrace the responsibilities that come with being in covenant with God. You with me? Then jump down to verse 6. Using the foreigner as an example. God says that the faithful are those who, quote, join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants and hold fast my covenant again, right? The first act. It's interesting here that the Lord describes the first act that really designates someone as a part of the Lord's people when he's describing here the foreigner, right? And that first act is the joining of themselves, ourselves to him, right? It's the human aspect and perspective of salvation, right? Our repentance and faith, our confession of faith in the Lord God, right? That's how we join ourselves to God. It's how we join ourselves to the people of God. But joining ourselves to God is further defined by these three phrases. To minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants. In other words, here's the deal. Joining yourself to God is a weighty thing, right? Right? Joining yourself publicly to the Lord, confessing your repentance and your faith, right? Making a public declaration of your faith in the Lord, that is a weighty thing. I've been talking about that this week with all the candidates for baptism for this Sunday. You don't want to get up there and make a false profession, right? And so, joining yourself to the Lord is reflected in in, in some things here, he says. First, to join yourself to the Lord is to minister to Him. And that word minister is a word that is used to describe service in the temple. It was used to describe the service of the Aaronic and the Levitical priests. Okay? Their role and their responsibilities in the worship of the Lord. That was their whole life, wasn't it? Wasn't it? And so to join ourselves to the Lord is to bind ourselves to worship Him exclusively and wholeheartedly as our supreme calling. Not that we all become pastors. That's not the idea here. But the idea is that we are exclusive and wholehearted in our worship towards the Lord. 
To love the name of the Lord is simply to love God for all that He is and for who He is with a sincere devotion and loyalty. What that word speaks of is of a deep and an abiding relationship that is characterized by truly knowing Him as He is, right? Not knowing about Him. Not getting your information about the Lord secondhand, right? There are some people, and I don't know how they do it, but they try to live their entire Christian life secondhand. You know, eating after other preachers and teachers what they themselves have already chewed up. It's not a pretty picture, is it? It's the idea of yourself desiring to know God intimately and personally. And that's not to take away from the importance of, you know, the prophets and the apostles and the pastors and the teachers and the shepherds. That's not to, that's not to do that at all. It's just to say that it's impossible to know someone through somebody else in fullness. Isn't that true? And then last... It speaks of serving the Lord with gladness for the whole of your life. A glad, a happy slavery is the idea here. And I'm not, you know, saying that to make anybody get weirded out in our, in our culture. I'm just saying that's the idea here. I don't live for myself. I live for the Lord. To join yourself to God is an all-in proposition, in other words. All of your life for the rest of your days, no matter what. In fact, I like what Steve Lawson says about this. He says, all of a life, he says, of resolve comes with a price tag. You will be tested by the lure of the world, but you must turn a deaf ear to the crowd and live instead for the approbation or the approval of Christ. There will always be a cross before a crown, sacrifice before success, and reproach before a reward. The call of discipleship will cost you popularity, possessions, and position. But God will use your commitment. The grace of God will be multiplied in you if you cultivate a fixed resolution to live for the glory of God. Amen. In reality, when we look at these, word, these, these marks, they're really nothing more or less than living a life of worship before the face of God are they? Presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. But before we leave these marks of the redeemed community, we need to talk about the threefold emphasis here on the Sabbath. I want to talk about that. It is, it's interesting here. It's mentioned regarding the Jews, then the eunuchs, and then the foreigners or the Gentiles, right? And the idea is, is that one of, the, one of the distinguishing marks of the people of God is that they will keep the Sabbath and they do not profane it, okay? So God says a fundamental identifier of the people of God is the Sabbath. The observance of the Sabbath. Now, it's, it's important to remember here, and, and, and I think people have forgotten this many times, that the, the Sabbath predates the Mosaic Law. I'm going to say that again. The Sabbath predates the Mosaic Law. It is codified in the Mosaic Law, Right? In, and and the, the, the nation of Israel is called to observe the Sabbath because of creation and called to observe the Sabbath because God had redeemed them out of Egypt. They're called to observe the Sabbath, you know, and keep that day holy. But I want us to understand that the Sabbath was established at creation. Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, set it apart. 
because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Okay, So the Sabbath day, the Sabbath as a holy day, was established as a creation and observing it as an expression of obedience to God for all people who would ever be created. You with me? The Sabbath was a day to be set aside for worship and for rest. For us, as Christians, we observe the Sabbath on what? The Lord's Day, right? That's our weekly holy day, if you will. Because that's the day in which Christ arose from the dead, victorious in His work of salvation, giving us Sabbath rest. Okay. Now some people argue that, well, because Jesus rose from the dead and He's our Sabbath rest, then the Lord's Day is not essential anymore. And I can't go into all the reasons why that is a foolish assumption, and it is foolish. I can't go into all of that right now, because it would just take too long. But the Lord's Day is firmly established as the holy day for the worship of the people of God, okay? So here's the question. Why does God make such a big deal of the Sabbath slash holy day? Why? Well, here's why. Because keeping the Sabbath, keeping the Lord's day, first of all, is a moral command of God, right? It's it's the law, the moral law of God. The very law that we just read was written on our hearts in the new covenant right and secondly it explicitly testifies to the orientation of your life regarding god one day set apart specifically for personal and corporate worship to enjoy the lord's rest to enjoy his fellowship and his blessing of his people to be refreshed by the Word of God, to offer praise and adoration to Him, to faithfully and sacrificially give to the Lord from everything that we have received as an act of sacrifice and thanksgiving, a day to present our gifts to Him, to be used as He directs, and to minister and to care for one another, and to pray with one another, to declare before the world, our God reigns. That's what the Lord's Day is. It sets us apart from a world, right? Now listen, I'm not, obviously there are Christians who are police officers and, and, and medical personnel and, you know, funeral personnel and whatever, right, that, that work in a, in, in a service that, that precludes, you know, we don't have police, Christian police, if, right, you following what I'm saying? But unless you're providentially hindered, the Lord's day is not to be disregarded. Our world sets this day apart as commonplace, like it's just another day, like, you know, it has no significance, it offers no benefit, it's just another day of the weekend, actually, right? It used to be in the old days that the weekend was Saturday, that was it, you got Saturday as your weekend, and then that didn't satisfy pagan unbelievers, and they were like, well, we're going to need Sunday too, and the church kind of gave it up. Hmm? We do that a lot. We've got to be worshipers, right? We've got to be worshipers every day, but we must keep the Lord's day holy. In fact, John MacArthur rightly says this. He's right on when he says this. He says, I find that the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives generally relate to two things. Either they are not worshiping six days a week with their life, or 
They are not worshiping one day a week with the assembly of the saints. We need both. Amen. So we got these markers, right? These identifiers of the true people of God, how the people of God are to live in the interim between promise and fulfillment, right? And then the second thing that this text presses home is the scope of God's grace and mercy, right? Don't worry, we're going to have time to pray. That first point was a lot longer than the other two. It's the scope of God's grace and His mercy. In fact, look back at the beginning of verse 2 with me, where it says, Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast. We see there that salvation in the Lord, a right standing with God, is offered not only to the ethnic Jews, right, but to every son of man. Literally what that is is son of Adam. Every son of Adam, which includes the whole human race, right? And that's why Paul would, would ask and answer the question in Romans chapter 3, verses 29 and 30, is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. Salvation is offered to all who will respond in faith to the gospel of God, right? So look at verse 3 with me, because this is where, this is, this is a pretty direct statement. He says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. What's going on here? Why, why this statement specifically about a foreigner and about a eunuch, right? Well, let's take the situation for the eunuch first. According to the ceremonial worship laws that were established by Moses, eunuchs were denied full participation in temple rituals, right? Because they were considered to be mutilated. But that ceremonial law is fulfilled in the servant. It's fulfilled in Christ. And so the barrier to full participation, beloved, it's been removed. And so the message to the eunuch, who really represents the outcast in Israel, the, the one who is, who, who is, you know, considered irredeemable. The message is you are not to consider yourself a dry tree. You're not to consider yourself someone who cannot be fruitful before the Lord. You are not to consider yourself as one who can offer no praise, no fruit to your God. You're not to be considered. Don't think of yourself that way. Don't think of yourself that way. Rather, God promises in verse 5, look at it. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give you something better than offspring, he says. I will give you an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, God promises here, I will share my eternity with you. I will, you who has no hope of posterity, you know, whatsoever, I will give you a name that will never be forgotten, a name that will never be cut off. And it's for the foreigner, right? What was the deal with the foreigner? Well, you remember the foreigner had to stay in the court of the Gentiles, right? Worshiping, yet from afar. But no longer. Here God says to them, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
God will bring him into his fellowship, into his holy mountain. Their sins will be atoned for. They will have instant access to God in prayer, right? Full participation in the worship of God. That's the picture of the burnt offerings and their sacrifices. And here's the idea. Here's the point. The, the foreigner, right? The eunuch, they stand as examples of those who had once been far off, but who have now been brought near by the salvific work of the servant. God's forgiveness, his fellowship, his blessing, his joy, everlasting life, the throne of grace and prayer. It's all opened up to all the people, regardless of their past, regardless of their station in life, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of any of those things by which we make distinctions among men. God has opened it up. In fact, isn't it amazingly cool? I was thinking about this. Isn't it so cool that the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, isn't that just an amazing thing? Think about this. He's both a foreigner and a eunuch. And he's immediately baptized into the people of God, received into the family of God. And interestingly enough, it was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, not too many chapters away, that he was reading when Philip the Evangelist came to him at the direction of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that neat? That's better than neat. I don't know. I'm looking for a a great word there, but remarkable, outstanding, right? And then last, just quickly, let's look at the purpose of God's grace. We find it here at the end of verse 7 and then in verse 8. Look at him with me. He says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer, for all peoples. Isn't that what Jesus said when he came in and just, you know, overturned and, and cleansed the temple, overturned all the money changers and cleansed the temple, right? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. I will gather yet others to my servant besides those already gathered. So when we look at this, what is it that is the Lord's end game. What is it that God desires? It's that his household, right? His temple, his people, his church, that his house would be a house of prayer, right? A house of worship, a house of communion with the Lord, a house of adoration, a house of praise. It's God who made humanity, right? It's God who will redeem his his chosen ones. It's God who will gather his people to himself to love his name and to lay hold of his covenant and to worship him forever. Our God is a gatherer and praise God that he is. I remember having a conversation with someone that used to go to this congregation. They don't come here anymore. But I remember having a conversation with them and they were talking about someone that was new to the faith and had yet, yet, not yet come to, to saving knowledge of Christ. And they were talking about this person and they used words like no hope and too far gone and, you know, that he'd already ruined himself, that he would return to his slop because that's what people like him do. And I remember trying to gently address that when what I really wanted to do was apply to be the instrument of the physical discipline of God. That's what I really wanted to do. But I listened to him say this. 
as if this person was below God's standards. Do you understand? Do you understand that there are no standards for those whom God saves? There's not. That's so foolish. If there were any standards at all, you wouldn't meet them. Ironically, that man, the person of whom that man spoke is still in the body of Christ, but I can't say the same for the one who spoke those words. Now, God is gracious. It remains to see what he might do. He may indeed yet gather that guy back, but beloved, God is a missionary God. He's a missionary God, and and that's why we're to be missionary people. Ethnic background, life experiences, personal appearance, your standing, how you're dressed, what you've done, where you've been. Listen, none of those things matter. Because the grace of God in Christ overcomes them all. God through Christ is gathering worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and truth. That's the end game. That's the great goal. That His house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples brought near by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll close with these words from John MacArthur. He says, praise God this is true. The Father and Son have sought to redeem us so that we may become worshipers. Jesus said that the Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. In John 4, he reveals the purpose for seeking. That the hour is coming, he says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The Father sent Christ to seek and to save. even the most vile for the specific purpose of producing worshiping people. Let's be worshiping people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so we are all so indebted to you with a debt that we could never repay and with a debt that you would never wish us to repay. But that you would save us and redeem us, that you would rescue us and make us your own. It is sometimes, Lord, it's overwhelming to even think about. To think about the power of your grace in our lives to cancel the debt of our sin. to pay the debt of our rebellion 
to satisfy in full the holy demands of the law. And then to make rebels worshipers and Lord, to fashion us more and more day by day into the image of our beloved Savior. Lord, it's remarkable. Thank you that the scope of your grace is what it is. Thank you, Lord, that we have acceptance with you not based on our ethnicity or anything we are or what we've done, but entirely because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And convince us, Lord, that you are the God who gathers and that there's absolutely no one that is beyond the reach of your grace. And that, Father, we would be faithful as wretched sinners who have received incalculable blessing to freely and gladly share the gospel with those who need to know you. I pray these words, Lord God, would exemplify this body. I pray that because of all that Christ has done, we would live faithful lives in this interim until we see him face to face. And that, Lord, you would be pleased in the way in which we live to the praise of your glory. Thank you for tonight and for this time. And I pray now, Lord God, that you will bless this time as we seek you in prayer. I pray that you'd loosen our tongues and, Father God, inflame our hearts to come to your throne of grace and to, 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 to just pray to you and implore you and ask of you that which exalts and magnifies you, to worship you, to make our needs known, though you already know them, and pray that you would glorify yourself in answering them. So Lord, bless this time of prayer, I pray in Jesus' name.